Welcome to the Mini Culture Podcast, a show that explores the untold stories of Minnesota's past and present. I'm your host, John Gebertatios. The Minneapolis Humane Society formed in the late 1800s to protect animals and eventually children. The early years focused on overworked horses and babies left on doorsteps. Over 150 years later, we are still seeing the impact of the early Humane Society. Today's story about the history of the Humane Society from KFAI's Michelle Brook begins with a sick kitten. Hi. The little motor goes. What's her name? Miss Scrumples. Astrid Road is visiting the kitten Miss Scrumples at the shelter she manages in Woodbury. As soon as the tiny kitten's diarrhea stops, she'll be cleared for adoption. You'll be out in a couple days. Today, it's standard for the Humane Society to care for sick kittens. Bottle feeding or ringworm treatment is part of the job to manage about 10,000 adoptions per year. But kitten care was not top of mind when the Humane Society formed in the late 1800s. In the 19th century city, you know, the streets are just filled with animals. And so you would have pigs being driven through the streets, cattle being driven through the streets, and of course horses providing all of the power for um, transportation. As historian Susan Pearson points out, horses were a major concern when the Humane Society began. Minneapolis residents described grocery delivery boys turning corners on one wheel, whipping horses nonstop to move as fast as possible. Sometimes, sick horses were turned loose in the streets to starve and die. Minnesota laws forbidding animal cruelty are as old as the state itself, but newspapers indicate they were rarely enforced. After seeing a man abuse horses who were trying to move a cart with clogged wheels, one visitor wrote to the Tribune in 1876, can't Minneapolis establish a society to prevent animal cruelty, like the one out east? A humane society. If you were going to be a really first-rate city, you needed something like this. This is David Clausen, former archivist at the University of Minnesota Social Welfare History Archives. Kind of the way a 21st century city needs a professional football team. Local papers reprinted lots of stories and cartoons of the famous Henry Berg, who founded the country's first humane society. He'd been horrified by Russians who brutally beat their horses in the streets of St. Petersburg, where he worked as a diplomat. He often tried to stop them. They listened to him when he was in uniform, whereas when he wasn't in uniform, he was more apt to be seen as just a kind of cranky meddler. Taking that lesson back to New York, Berg's new society in 1866 secured the legal power to make arrests for animal cruelty. Sometimes Minneapolis writers laughed at Berg, especially when he took a ship captain to court for rough treatment of turtles destined for turtle soup. But Berg's ideas started to resonate, like when he stopped injured horses from pulling streetcars. Cities across the country copied his model. Minnesota's Humane Society organized in 1869, and when a Minneapolis branch formed in 1878, the Tribune headline stated, Protection for Dumb Beasts. You've got self-starting people they have, you know, enough of a conscience, it's not just about lining their pocketbooks. They have to live here, and they want it to be a livable place. Minneapolis organizers included George Brackett, the sixth mayor of Minneapolis and a volunteer fire chief. Abby Judson, the founder of a school for girls, led a female group focused on education. One early society president, John Day Smith, had been shot in the jaw during a Civil War battle. A surgeon thought he would bleed to death and left him under a tree to die. 
Smith made it out of there by clinging to an army wagon wheel and refusing to let go. He relied on the kindness of strangers to make it home. And years later in Minneapolis, he advocated against cruelty of all kinds. The new Minneapolis Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals put out a pamphlet in 1878 that announced, and I'm paraphrasing, when you review your life, all your energy gratifying personal desires will look like a barren waste. Charity is the bright spot of your life. We ask you to speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. In the first two years, according to the Tribune, society members posted all over town 200 copies of the state law forbidding animal cruelty in large print. They sent every butcher a Harvard professor's instructions on how to kill animals humanely. They sent illustrated newspapers to Sunday schools to teach children to be kind to animals. They considered arrests to be a last resort, so they sent warnings every week to people known for hurting their horses. Two women were very successful traveling door-to-door to solicit donations for the new society, and they were authorized to keep 25% of the money they collected. Operating funds came from $1 membership fees, fines for cruelty, and a fundraiser that sold the book Black Beauty. Although founded to protect animals, the society quickly focused on cruelty to children as well. When animal protection organizations were established, people immediately started bringing them cases of cruelty to children. It started with a case in 1874 reported in the New York Times. A sick woman could hear through the walls of her apartment a crying child being beaten every day and night. She begged a church visitor named Etta Wheeler to knock on the neighbor's door. When the door opened, she claimed to see this little girl who was dressed in a dress of tattered rags and who bore the marks of abuse on her body with scars and bruises and things. The girl was living with a foster mother who told neighbors the child was a little devil. The foster mother once scarred her forehead with a scissors for quilting the wrong way. Etta Wheeler felt she must find an institution to take charge of the child. Her priest suggested she contact police. Then the police said, well, you know, you don't have any evidence of the abuse. This is all kind of hearsay. Then she tried charities who cared for orphans. And they said, we can't do anything about it. Uh, we only take care of children once they're brought to our doorstep. Finally, her niece had a suggestion. Why don't you contact Mr. Berg, essentially saying he cares for the helpless, um, and surely the child is an animal, so he will care about her. Henry Berg took the case. The foster mother went to jail, and the girl found a home with Etta Wheeler's family. Berg and other New Yorkers created a new society to enforce child cruelty laws that police were rarely tackling. Children were very much the responsibility of their parents. The state is not supposed to come in and act in place of the parents, except in the most extreme of emergencies. Minnesota expanded humane society jurisdiction in 1879 to include cruelty to young children. The reason why animals came first is that animals were considered more valuable than children. This is Molly Greenman, former president of the Family Partnership, which operated under the umbrella of the Minneapolis Humane Society until 1916. I mean, you lose a cow, you don't have milk. Animals and children were viewed as similar kinds of creatures in the late 19th century helpless and innocent, with no control over their fate, according to Susan Pearson. But their value is shifting from workers to objects of love. And there's a rise in pet keeping. 
people today talk about fur kids. But even in the 19th century, if you had a cat or a dog, it meant you had a perpetual baby in the house. Humane Society agents worked long hours. A single agent in 1894 investigated more than 900 cases. Their handwritten letters and case files are packed in boxes at the Minnesota Historical Society. When you look through them, it's astonishing the breadth of things that they were asked to investigate. In 1891, the Society found children a new home when their parents were beating a boy senseless and putting him outdoors at night until his hands, ears, and feet were frosted. Agents said they didn't want to separate families unless absolutely necessary, but they did send dozens of children to new homes and institutions every year. In the winter of 1911, an agent gave a horse blanket to a delivery man who couldn't afford one. When the agent discovered the horse again without a blanket, the man said he brought it home to cover his sick wife, according to the Tribune. The Minneapolis Journal reported in 1906 that the society would help a 15-year-old boy obtain a work permit to support his family who was eating only bread and water while their widowed mother suffered from tuberculosis. I mean, there's no safety net of any sort. You're one step from a disaster that changes everything. The Humane Society also worked to shut down baby farms, places where unmarried mothers could deliver babies or pay to secretly give them away. The society described one baby farm as a dirty room on Washington Avenue. If humane agents discovered these babies in poor health, sometimes drinking skimmed milk, the society would fund better care. To prevent babies from being left on doorsteps, they tried opening a baby hospital in 1907, but they had to close after nine months when funding ran out. Society women later opened a Minneapolis home where single mothers could board their children. Here's Molly Greenman. This community has always had a very strong philanthropic um, sense, but they, they wanted their resources to go to people who deserved it. They didn't want people to get too much because that was going to uh, promote waste. Some cases focused on protecting children's morals rather than their bodies. Parents brought their daughters into the Humane Society office if they were stealing or staying out too late or spending time with wild acquaintances. The girls might receive warnings for trips to reform school. Susan Pearson explains. What could possibly link beating a horse in the street with girls going to dance halls is a little mind-boggling. And I thought a lot about this. The idea of cruelty encompassed what I would call the moral endangerment that would lead a young woman astray and really affect her for the rest of her life in the same way that being beaten would affect someone and malform them for the rest of their life. Policewoman Emily Glorieux was detailed to the Humane Society to patrol dance halls and make sure there were no female patrons under age 21 inside. A poem in the Morning Tribune said she could scare both men and spooks. But when a dance hall employee tried to throw her out and was charged with resisting an officer, he questioned in court whether a woman could legally work as an officer. She lost her job because in 1913, state law said police must be registered voters and women did not have the right to vote yet. Here's shelter manager Astrid Road. Animal welfare stuff started out with a lot of women. They were able to make something that has lasted from back then where they were able and brave enough and they did a fantastic job. Dr. Emily Fifield was part of the all-female staff that established a hospital to serve women and children, which went on to become Abbott Northwestern. As a Humane Society's physician, she wrote in 1898 about scheduling an operation for a four-year-old boy with club foot 
and she tracked down his father in Colorado to support his family surviving on just $5 a week by doing laundry. Humane agents often confronted fathers who drained their wages on alcohol. Agent Simon Van Etten believed one husband earning $1.50 for his family by shoveling streets was better than three in the workhouse, so he started a probation system to stay a prison sentence so long as the man supported his family. Out of 133 cases in three years, he said only seven stumbled. The program became part of the city's municipal court, a forerunner to the probation system we know today. These early animal and child protection organizations were the first to say that there's a kind of public duty towards animals and children. A lot of what they did has actually been absorbed into the state. Child protection work split off in 1917. As vehicles replaced horses, the renamed Animal Rescue League shifted its focus to dogs. Before the Humane Society got involved, Minneapolis police hired a dog catcher in the late 1800s who spent two months of each year trying to rid the city of stray dogs. Dogs were herded into a pen at the city pound near the riverfront. If no one claimed them after three days, the dogs were drowned in cages, up to ten at a time. Hundreds of children gathered to watch. <laughs> to stop the public drowning and rough treatment, the Humane Society convinced the city to give them control of the pound operation. Their 1910 report said fine dogs were fed oatmeal and restaurant scraps and were never destroyed. They killed mongrels with a hypodermic after three days. A keeper lived on site to answer calls day and night. One dog who had been adopted came back from several miles away to live at the shelter year-round. Here's shelter manager Astrid Road. You know, they probably lived without maybe even flushing anything, running water, and they still wanted to care for these animals and make their lives better. Fear of rabies brought many animals to the shelter. The Tribune described an Irish setter frothing at the mouth and running through northeast Minneapolis in 1888 as people ran into their houses and slammed the doors. The dog bit a three-year-old in the face, and the boy reportedly died two months later in terrible agony. Cities responded to a rabies outbreak in the 30s by requiring that all dogs wear muzzles. Newspapers reported that dogs without muzzles were collected in Animal Rescue League trucks and brought to their shelter in Golden Valley. Unclaimed dogs were killed. Myrtle Dickinson told the Tribune that the muzzling proclamation was the hardest day of her career. As executive secretary for 37 years, she visited thousands of school children to teach love and respect for animals. When the owner of the Longfellow Zoo near Minnehaha Falls died in 1933, she fed the giraffes, bears, and monkeys every day while his estate took months to settle. Dickinson refused to comply with the 1949 state law that said public dog pounds should give animals to the U of M for research. Doctors told the Minneapolis Star they needed dogs to study medicine for women in childbirth and eye drops for babies. The League thought the experiments were cruel, so they terminated their dog-catching contract, and the city of Minneapolis hired a commercial kennel instead. Shelter finances suffered, and the stance varied over the years, but a final break came in the late 60s, when the board voted to end all city contracts and become entirely self-supporting. Today, it's an independent nonprofit, funded through donations and adoption fees. But when I came there, we were in a hole. It was a tough few years. This is Alan Stensrud. He was a stickler for cleanliness during his time as executive director from 1975 to 2005. He thought more people would adopt animals if the renamed Animal Humane Society of Hennepin County was spick and span. They call me men with white gloves. If the shelter looks dirty, 
I wouldn't go in again. Some animals made a lasting impression. He didn't know what to do with the foul-mouthed parrot that previously lived at a bar, or a Bengal tiger seized in a cruelty case. I walked in the room, <coughs> jumped at the gate. He fundraised and promoted adoption through direct mail and media coverage like telethons. We uh, increased adoptions substantially, get the messages out there so people become more orientated to saving lives and, and being careful and don't having all these litters. This undated cable TV show from the series A Public Health Journal is stored in the University of Minnesota Library's Social Welfare History Archives. You know, if pets are so much trouble or so much bother, why would anybody want to own a pet in the first place? Very simple. In a word, companionship. Animals are great at giving what's called an unconditional love and acceptance. Cats don't care or dogs don't care if you don't have the right kind of clothes or if your hair is green or blue. This is Karen Mangold, former Humane Society Education Coordinator. People have done studies and say that your emotional well-being increases when you own a pet. People are happier when they have an animal sharing their home with them. And it also has some physical benefits to it as well. People's blood pressure and their heart rate goes down when they're stroking an animal or being with an animal. So it's very beneficial. Stensrud said Golden Valley was one of the first shelters in the country to hire an animal behaviorist to train dogs. One expert advisor was the late R.K. Anderson, who with Ruth Foster invented the gentle leader as an alternative to the choke collar. They tested this invention on shelter dogs. We wanted to try and do things that would stop being harmful because everything we did with animals in those days was what a German colonel did to train dogs in 1900. In my view, it was really painful. This is R.K. Anderson speaking in 2011 for the Academic Health Center Oral History Project, stored in the University of Minnesota archives. He emphasized positive reinforcement, which the Humane Society teaches in training classes today. Changing behavior is difficult in humans. It's not nearly as difficult in animals. <laughs> Humane agent Keith Streff has seen public opinion shift a lot since he started investigating animal cruelty in 1987. Back then, he couldn't count the number of times he heard the same thing from law enforcement. Ah, it's just a dog. We got more important things to deal with. And uh, today that's not so much. While public attitudes may have changed, Streff sees cruelty cases holding steady. And I've literally and figuratively been standing in dead and dying animals in excrement over ankle deep and had people tell me that, why are you here? Why are you harassing me? I'm a little behind on my vacuuming. If you'd have come by a couple hours later, you wouldn't be seeing this. They're building a case around their innocence and saying that we're just a bunch of radical animal rights activists that are infringing upon their freedoms. As the Humane Society budget grew, some activists started to protest their practices. In 1976, the Humane Society was adopting out 5,000 animals a year and killing 15,000, according to the Star Tribune. Stensrud said he couldn't keep thousands of animals indefinitely. Hey, we get 150 animals of yesterday, 100 today, 85 tomorrow, 65. I said, who's going to build a shelter 10 stories tall and pay for it and feed them and so forth? I say, hey, I saved thousands of lives that wouldn't, make, wouldn't be here. Arguments like this did not satisfy Heidi Greger, program manager at the Animal Rights Coalition. Beginning in the 80s, the coalition fought the Humane Society's killing methods in letters to newspapers and state legislators. Educating their neighbors, you know, word of mouth, telling people this is what's happening 
and uh, because people didn't know ignorance is bliss it's wonderful to think that that every every animal who goes in he finds a home what it means to humanely kill an animal has changed in the past century when the humane society took over the pound to stop drowning in the early 1900s they built a new shelter that killed animals using gas membership cards in 1935 highlighted the gas chamber on board a rescue ambulance by the 1960s animals were killed in a chamber that removed air until the animal became unconscious and died according to the minneapolis star Staff believed this death was painless. But it's hard and mostly for the, for the people doing it. But they tried to make the animal as comfortable as possible. But hey, they're still hurt. State law banned decompression chambers in 1985, and the Star Tribune reported that the Humane Society stopped using carbon monoxide gas in 2001. Today, they say they only use lethal injection. Heidi Greger said she's been frustrated by the slow pace of change. There's skepticism there. I mean, they do so many wonderful things. You know, there's veterinary care now, spay neutering, but they're, they always have to be dragged along. It's like pulling teeth to get them to follow or to catch up with where everyone else is. And that's been a huge disappointment because they're the wealthiest and largest shelter in Minnesota. There's just no excuse for them not to be the leaders Following a big merger with other shelters, the Humane Society found a way to dramatically increase the adoption rate. No longer could animals be dropped off in the middle of the night. Instead, in 2011, they started requiring appointments that could be weeks out to manage shelter capacity. And they launched a free pet helpline, hoping to keep more pets at home. Previously, they had been taking in about 34,000 animals a year, killing about 40% and placing about 60%, according to current president Janelle Dixon. Once we made that shift, we were able to reduce our animal intake down to about 25,000 animals. And we shifted our placement rate up to 80%. That happened within about a year. So we just saw huge, huge shifts in how we were able to care for animals, what we were able to provide. Now they're up to 93% placement, and they're trying to make adoptions easier, with fewer hoops to jump through. They still accept every animal, regardless of health or temperament. Even 20 years ago, animals from shelters were looked at as damaged goods. Through a lot of effort and promotion of shelter animals and humane societies or ASPCAs and the work they do, that perception has changed. 17,000 pets found a home last year through the Animal Humane Society. Media stories continue to promote adoption, like this 2014 segment from CCX Media. This summer, a makeover at the Golden Valley Shelter aims to increase adoptions. A new St. Paul campus is slated to open in 2025 with the entire shelter accessible to the community. The demand now can sometimes exceed the actual number of animals that are available to be adopted by someone. And we saw that during COVID too. And we would have um, a kitten come up for adoption and 200 people would apply to adopt it. Mary Jo Madsen volunteers at the Humane Society four or five days a week. Can you sit? Good job, good job. That's a good boy. You'll find her training new people, passing out frozen Kongs and walking dogs that are bigger than her. So for me, it really helps just with dealing with life struggles. The dogs demand your attention and takes you kind of out of your head, own head. And it, they just make you feel happy, even if sometimes they're crazy or, you know, and sometimes it's dirty work, you're picking up poop and you know, dealing with all that. But I love it. I love every part of it. Madsen brings a dog named Chester out to Kieran, who is looking to adopt. 
um, we're kind of looking to start like a little family of our own. Pets are family for people. Just in my time in 30 years in this field, animals were outdoor cats or dogs that were kept in kennels to getting into the house and being allowed in the house and being allowed on the sofa, <laughs> being allowed in our bedrooms. And you know, the newest thing and which many people concur is not only are they in our bedroom sleeping, but they're sleeping in bed with us and telling us where to sleep in that bed. And we are complying with that, where you contort yourself to make sure you're not disturbing your dog or your cat or both or whoever you've got sleeping with you. Sometimes at my house, there's three dogs on the bed, right? <laughs> and you're like, ah. 150 years ago, it may have been rare to let a dog sleep in your bed, but it's clear from the archives that animal bonds still ran deep. People offered rewards for lost dogs in 19th century newspapers. One woman pleaded with the Humane Society in 1915 not to kill her 22-year-old horse with a lame leg. One man in 1905 rescued a St. Bernard with a sprained leg stuck in a ravine near Minnehaha Creek. The same year, a humane agent crept along the 10th Avenue Bridge trussel work, high above the river, to rescue a cat that had been clinging there for days. Astrid Rhodes said staff are constantly learning and trying to make the best decision for each animal. It's emotional work. She once brought home a cat that didn't have long to live. But she got into a home for a month, played with my other cats, and had a good month of life. So, you know, is that a good or a bad? For, for me, I chose that was good, because <laughs> that's the way you protect yourself. And, you know, and you cry and you cry and you cry, and you know, you know, they had a good life for what they had. They didn't get a long life, it wasn't fair, but they had a life. The kitten Miss Grumples, who you heard at the beginning of this story, is now healthy. Like most kittens at the shelter, she was adopted in a single day. For KFAI, I'm Michelle Brook. Support for Mini Culture on KFAI has been provided by the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. Season 7 of the Mini Culture podcast is edited and executive produced by Julie Sensulo. New episodes coming soon, so subscribe to Mini Culture wherever you get your podcasts. I'm your host, John Gibertatios, and thanks for listening.